Chapter Three, Part Two of the Eight Strokes of the Clock. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lenny. The Eight Strokes of the Clock by Maurice Leblanc. Chapter Three, Part Two. Prince Henin had listened in silence. But Hortense, as the story approached its conclusion, had given way to a hilarity which she could no longer restrain, and suddenly, in spite of all her efforts, she burst into a fit of the wildest laughter. "'Forgive me,' she said, her eyes filled with tears. "'Do forgive me. It's too much for my nerves.' "'Don't apologize, madam,' said the young man, gently, in a voice free from resentment. I warned you that my story was laughable. I better than any one know how absurd, how nonsensical it is. Yes, the whole thing is perfectly grotesque. But believe me, when I tell you that it was no fun in reality. It seems a humorous situation, and it remains humorous by the force of circumstances, but it's also horrible. You can see that for yourself, can't you? The two mothers, neither of whom was certain of being a mother, but neither of whom was certain that she was not one, both clung to Jean-Louis. He might be a stranger. On the other hand, he might be their own flesh and blood. They loved him to excess and fought for him furiously. And above all, they both came to hate each other with a deadly hatred. Deferring completely in character and education, and obliged to live together because neither was willing to forgo the advantage of her possible maternity, they lived the life of irreconcilable enemies, who can never lay their weapons aside. I grew up in the midst of this hatred, and had it instilled into me by both of them. When my childish heart, hungering for affection, inclined me to one of them, the other would seek to inspire me with loathing and contempt for her. In this manor-house, which they bought on to the old doctor's death, and to which they added the two wings, I was the involuntary torturer and their daily victim. Tormented as a child, and, as a young man, leading the most hideous of lives, I doubt if any one on earth ever suffered more than I did. "'You ought to have left them,' exclaimed Hortense, who had stopped laughing. "'One can't leave one's mother, and one of those two women was my mother, and a woman can't abandon her son, and each of them was entitled to believe that I was her son. We were all three chained together like convicts, with chains of sorrow, compassion, doubt, and also of hope that the truth might one day become apparent. And here we still are, all three, insulting one another and blaming one another for our wasted lives. Oh, what a hell! And there was no escape in it. I tried, often enough, but in vain. The broken bonds became tied again. Only this summer, under the stimulus of my love for Genevieve, I tried to free myself, and did my utmost to persuade the two women whom I call mother. And then, and then, I was up against their complaints, their immediate hatred of the wife, of the stranger whom I was proposing to force upon them. I gave way. What sort of a life would Genevieve have had here, between Madame d'Imbleval and Madame Vaurois? I had no right to victimize her. Jean-Louis, who had been gradually becoming excited, uttered these last words in a firm voice as though he would have wished his conduct to be ascribed to conscientious motives and a sense of duty. In reality, as Renin and Hortense clearly saw, 
his was an unusually weak nature incapable of reacting against a ridiculous position from which he had suffered ever since he was a child and which he had come to look upon as final and irremediable he endured it as a man bears a cross which he has no right to cast aside and at the same time he was ashamed of it he had never spoken of it to genevieve from dread of ridicule and afterwards on returning to his prison he had remained there out of habit and weakness he sat down to a writing-table and quickly wrote a letter which he handed to renin would you be kind enough to give this note to mademoiselle emma and beg her once more to forgive me renin did not move and when the other pressed the letter upon him he took it and tore it up what does this mean asked the young man it means that i will not charge myself with any message why because you are coming with us i yes you will see mademoiselle emma to-morrow and ask for her hand in marriage jean louis looked at renin with a rather disdainful air as though he were thinking here's a man who has not understood a word of what i've been explaining to him but hortense went up to renin why do you say that because it will be as i say but you must have your reasons one only but it will be enough provided this gentleman is so kind as to help me in my enquiries enquiries with what object asked the young man with the object of proving that your story is not quite accurate jean louis took umbrage at this i must ask you to believe monsieur that i have not said a word which is not the exact truth i express myself badly said renin with great kindness certainly you have not said a word that does not agree with what you believe to be the exact truth but the truth is not cannot be what you believe it to be the young man folded his arms in any case monsieur it seems likely that i should know the truth better than you do why better what happened on that tragic night can obviously be known to you only at second hand you have no proofs neither have madame d'imblevall and madame vaurois no proofs of what exclaimed jean louis losing patience no proofs of the confusion that took place what why it's an absolute certainty the two children were laid in the same cradle with no marks to distinguish one from the other and the nurse was unable to tell at least that's her version of it interrupted renin what's that her version but you're accusing the woman i'm accusing her of nothing yes you are you're accusing her of lying and why should she lie she had no interest in doing so and her tears and despair are so much evidence of her good faith for after all the two mothers were there they saw the woman weeping they questioned her and then i repeat what interest had she jean louis was greatly excited close beside him madame d'imbleval and madame vaurois who had no doubt been listening behind the doors and who had stealthily entered the room stood stammering in amazement no no it's impossible we've questioned her over and over again why should she tell a lie speak monsieur speak jean louis enjoined explain yourself give your reasons for trying to cast doubt upon an absolute truth because that truth is inadmissible declared henin raising his voice and growing excited in turn to the point of punctuating his remarks by thumping the table no things don't happen like that no fate does not display those refinements of cruelty and chance is not added to chance with such reckless extravagance it was already an unprecedented chance that on the very night on which the doctor his manservant and his maid were out of the house the two ladies should be seized with labor pains at the same hour and should bring two sons into the world at the same time don't let us add a still more exceptional event 
Enough of the uncanny. Enough of lamps that go out and candles that refuse to burn. No, and again no. It is not admissible that a midwife should become confused in the essential details of her trade. However bewildered she may be by the unforeseen nature of the circumstances, a remnant of instinct is still on the alert, so that there is a place prepared for each child, and each is kept distinct from the other. The first child is here, the second is there. Even if they are lying side by side, one is on the left and the other on the right. Even if they are wrapped in the same kind of binders, some little detail differs, a trifle which is recorded by the memory and which is inevitably recalled to the mind without any need of reflection. Confusion? I refuse to believe in it. Impossible to tell one from the other? It isn't true. In the world of fiction, yes, one can imagine all sorts of fantastic accidents and heap contradiction on contradiction. But in the world of reality, at the very heart of reality, there is always a fixed point, a solid nucleus, about which the facts group themselves in accordance with a logical order. I therefore declare, most positively, that Nurse Boussignol could not have mixed up the two children. All this he said decisively, as though he had been present during the night in question, and so great was his power of persuasion, that from the very first he shook the certainty of those who, for more than a quarter of a century, had never doubted. The two women and their son pressed round him, and questioned him with breathless anxiety. Then, you think that she may know? That she may be able to tell us? He corrected himself. I don't say yes, and I don't say no. All I say is that there was something in her behavior during those hours that does not tally with her statements and with reality. All the vast and intolerable mystery that has weighed down upon you, three, arises not from a momentary lack of attention, but from something of which we do not know, but of which she does. That is what I maintain, and that is what happened. Jean-Louis said in a husky voice, She's alive. She lives at Carré. We can send for her. Hortense at once proposed, Would you like me to go for her? I will take the mother and bring her back with me. Where does she live? In the middle of the town, at a little draper's shop. The chauffeur will show you. Mademoiselle Boussignol, everybody knows her. And whatever you do, added Renin, don't warn her in any way. If she's uneasy, so much the better. But don't let her know what we want with her. Twenty minutes passed in absolute silence. Renin paced the room, in which the fine old furniture, the handsome tapestries, the well-bound books, and pretty knick-knacks denoted a love of art and a seeking after style in Jean-Louis. This room was really his. In the adjoining apartments on either side, through the open doors, Renin was able to note the bad taste of the two mothers. He went up to Jean-Louis and, in a low voice, asked, Are they well off? Yes. And you? They settled the manor house upon me, with all the land around it, which makes me quite independent. Have they any relations? Sisters, both of them. With whom they could go to live? Yes. And they have sometimes thought of doing so. But there can't be any question of that. Once more, I assure you. Meantime, the car had returned. The two women jumped up hurriedly, ready to speak. Leave it to me, said Renin, and don't be surprised by anything that I say. It's not a matter of asking her questions, but of frightening her, of flurrying her. The sudden attack, he added between his teeth. The car drove round the lawn and drew up outside the windows. Hortense sprang out and helped an old woman to alight, dressed in a fluted linen cap, 
a black velvet bodice, and a heavy gathered skirt. The old woman entered in a great state of alarm. She had a pointed face, like a weasel's, with a prominent mouth full of protruding teeth. "'What's the matter, Madame d'Imbleval?' she asked timidly, stepping into the room from which the doctor had once driven her. "'Good day to you, Madame Vaurois. The ladies did not reply. Renine came forward and said sternly, "'Mademoiselle Boussignol, I have been sent by the Paris police to throw light upon a tragedy which took place here twenty-seven years ago. I have just secured evidence that you have distorted the truth, and that, as the result of your false declarations, the birth certificate of one of the children born in the course of that night is inaccurate. Now, false declarations in matters of birth certificates are misdemeanors punishable by law. I shall therefore be obliged to take you to Paris to be interrogated, unless you are prepared here and now to confess everything that might repair the consequences of your offence. The old maid was shaking in every limb. Her teeth were chattering. She was evidently incapable of opposing the least resistance to Renin. "'Are you ready to confess everything?' he asked. "'Yes.' she panted. Without delay, I have to catch a train. The business must be settled immediately. If you show the least hesitation, I take you with me. Have you made up your mind to speak? Yes. He pointed to Jean-Louis. Whose son is this gentleman? Madame d'Imblevals? No. Madame Vaurois, therefore? No. A stupefied silence welcomed the two replies. Explain yourself, Renin commanded, looking at his watch. Then, Madame Boussignol fell on her knees and said, in so low and dull a voice, that they had to bend over her in order to catch the sense of what she was mumbling. Someone came in the evening, a gentleman with a newborn baby wrapped in blankets, which he wanted the doctor to look after. As the doctor wasn't there, he waited all night, and it was he who did it all. Did what? asked Renin. What did he do? What happened? Well, what happened was that it was not one child but the two of them that died. Madame d'Imblevals and Madame Vaurois, too, both in convulsions. Then the gentleman, seeing this, said, This shows me where my duty lies. I must seize this opportunity of making sure that my own boy shall be happy and well cared for. Put him in the place of one of the dead children. He offered me a big sum of money, saying that this one payment would save him the expense of providing for his child every month. And I accepted. Only, I did not know in whose place to put him and whether to say that the boy was Louis d'Imbleval or Jean Vaurois. The gentleman thought a moment and said neither. Then he explained to me what I was to do and what I was to say after he had gone. And while I was dressing his boy in vests and binders, the same as one of the dead children, he wrapped the other in the blankets he had brought with him, and went out into the night. Mademoiselle Boussignol bent her head and wept. After a moment, Renin said, "'Your deposition agrees with the result of my investigations.' Can I go? Yes. And is it over, as far as I'm concerned? They won't be talking about this all over the district? No. Oh, just one more question. Do you know the man's name? No, he didn't tell me his name. Have you ever seen him since? Never. Have you anything more to say? No. Are you prepared to sign the written text of your confession? Yes. Very well. I shall send for you in a week or two. Till then, not a word to anybody. He saw her to the door, and closed it after her. When he returned, Jean-Louis was between the two old ladies, and all three were holding hands. The bond of hatred and wretchedness which had bound them had suddenly snapped.
and this rupture, without requiring them to reflect upon the matter, filled them with a gentle tranquillity of which they were hardly conscious, but which made them serious and thoughtful. "'Let's rush things,' said Rénine to Hortense. "'This is the decisive moment of the battle. We must get Jean-Louis on board.' Hortense seemed preoccupied. She whispered, "'Why did you let the woman go? Were you satisfied with her statement?' "'I don't need to be satisfied. She told us what happened. What more do you want?' "'Nothing. I, I don't know.' We'll talk about it later, my dear. For the moment, I repeat, we must get Jean-Louis on board, and immediately. Otherwise, he turned to the young man. You agree with me, don't you, that, things being as they are, it is best for you and Madame Vaurois and Madame Dimbleval to separate for a time? That will enable you all to see matters more clearly, and to decide in perfect freedom what is to be done. Come with us, monsieur. The most pressing thing is to save Geneviève Aymar, your fiancée. Jean-Louis stood perplexed and undecided. Henin turned to the two women. "'That is your opinion, too, I am sure, ladies?' They nodded. "'You see, monsieur,' he said to Jean-Louis, "'we are all agreed. In great crisis there is nothing like separation. A few days' respite. Quickly now, monsieur.' And without giving him time to hesitate, he drove him towards his bedroom to pack up. Half an hour later, Jean-Louis left the manor-house with his new friends. "'And he won't go back until he's married?' said Henin to Hortense, as they were waiting at Carré station, to which the car had taken them, while Jean-Louis was attending to his luggage. Everything's for the best. Are you satisfied? Yes, Geneviève will be glad, she replied absently. When they had taken their seats in the train, Renin and she repaired to the dining car. Renin, who had asked Hortense several questions, to which she had replied only in monosyllables, protested. What's the matter with you, my child? You look worried. I no, not at all. Yes, yes, I know you. Now, no secrets, no mysteries. She smiled. Well, since you insist on knowing if I am satisfied, I am bound to admit that of course I am, as regards my friend Genevieve, but that, in another respect, from the point of view of the adventure, I have an uncomfortable sort of feeling. To speak frankly, I haven't staggered you this time. Not very much. I seem to you to have played a secondary part. For, after all, what have I done? We arrived, we listened to Jean-Louis' tale of woe, I had a midwife fetched, and that was all. Exactly. I want to know if that was all, and I'm not quite sure. To tell you the truth, our other adventures left behind them an impression which was, how shall I put it, more definite, clearer. And this one strikes you as obscure. Obscure, yes, and incomplete. But in what way? I don't know. Perhaps it has something to do with that woman's confession. Yes, very likely that's it. It was all so unexpected and so short. Well, of course I cut it short, as you can readily imagine, said Henin, laughing. We didn't want too many explanations. What do you mean? Why, if she had given her explanations with too much detail, we should have ended by doubting what she was telling us. By doubting it? Well, hang it all, the story is a trifle far-fetched. That fellow arriving at night with a live baby in his pocket, and going away with a dead one. The thing hardly holds water. But you see, my dear, I hadn't much time to coach the unfortunate woman in her part. Hortense stared at him in amazement. What on earth do you mean? Well, you know how dull-witted these country women are. And she and I had no time to spare, so we worked out a little scene in a hurry. 
and she really didn't act it so badly. It was all in the right key, terror, tremolo, tears. Is it possible? murmured Hortense. Is it possible? You had seen her beforehand? I had to, of course. But when? This morning, when we arrived. While you were titivating yourself at the hotel at Carré, I was running round to see what information I could pick up. As you may imagine, everybody in the district knows the Dembevolvoroa story. I was at once directed to the former midwife, Mademoiselle Boussignol. With Mademoiselle Boussignol, it did not take long. Three minutes to settle a new version of what had happened and ten thousand francs to induce her to repeat that, more or less credible, version to the people at the manor house. A quite incredible version. Not so bad as all that, my child, seeing that you believed it, and the others too. And that was the essential thing. What I had to do was to demolish at one blow a truth which had been twenty-seven years in existence, and which was all the more firmly established because it was founded on actual facts. That was why I went for it with all my might and attacked it by sheer force of eloquence. Impossible to identify the children? I deny it. Inevitable confusion? It's not true. You're all three, I say, the victims of something which I don't know, but which it is your duty to clear up. That's easily done, says Jean-Louis, whose conviction is at once shaken. Let's send for Mademoiselle Boussignol. Right, let's send for her. Whereupon, Mademoiselle Boussignol arrives and mumbles out the little speech which I have taught her. Sensation, general stupefaction, of which I take advantage to carry off our young man. Hortense shook her head. But they'll get over it, all three of them, I'm thinking. Never, never. They will have their doubts, perhaps. But they will never consent to feel certain. They will never agree to think. Use your imagination. Here are three people whom I have rescued from the hell in which they have been floundering for a quarter of a century. Do you think they're going back to it? Here are three people who, from weakness or a false sense of duty, had not the courage to escape. Do you think that they won't cling like grim death to the liberty which I'm giving them? Nonsense. Why, they would have swallowed a hoax twice as difficult to digest as that which Mademoiselle Boussignol dished up for them. After all, my version was no more absurd than the truth. On the contrary, and they swallowed it whole. Look at this. Before we left, I heard Madame Demblevol and Madame Vaurois speak of an immediate removal. They were already becoming quite affectionate at the thought of seeing the last of each other. But what about Jean-Louis? Jean-Louis? Why, he was fed up with his two mothers. By jingo, one can't do with two mothers in a lifetime. What a situation! And when one has the luck to be able to choose between having two mothers or none at all, why, bless me, one doesn't hesitate. And, besides, Chenouille is in love with Genevieve, he left. And he loves her well enough, I hope and trust, not to inflict two mothers-in-law upon her. Come, you may be easy in your mind. Your friend's happiness is assured. And that is all you ask for. All that matters is the object which we achieve, and not the more or less peculiar nature of the methods which we employ. And if some adventures are wound up and some mysteries elucidated, by looking for and finding cigarette ends, or incendiary water-bottles, and blazing hat-boxes, as on our last expedition, others call for psychology, and for purely psychological solutions. I have spoken, and I charge you to be silent. Silent? Yes, there's a man and woman sitting behind us, who seem to be saying something uncommonly interesting. But they're talking in whispers. Just so. When people talk in whispers, it's always about something shady. He lit a cigarette and sat back in his chair. Hortense listened, 
but in vain. As for him, he was emitting little slow puffs of smoke. Fifteen minutes later, the train stopped, and the man and woman got out. Pity, said Henin, that I don't know their names or where they're going, but I know where to find them. My dear, we have a new adventure before us. Hortense protested. Oh, no, please, not yet. Give me a little rest. And oughtn't we to think of Genevieve? He seemed greatly surprised. Why, all that's over and done with. Do you mean to say you want to waste any more time over that old story? Well, I, for my part, confess that I've lost all interest in the man with the two mamas. And this was said in such a comical tone, and with such diverting sincerity, that Hortense was once more seized with a fit of giggling. Laughter alone was able to relax her exasperated nerves, and to distract her from so many contradictory emotions. End of chapter 3, part 2